We want better schools. We want them now. Stand in our way, and you'll catch these eight black hands with Ankrum, Cole, El Mecky, and Stewart. Join us now for an hour or more of talk on education and culture. What's going on, folks? Uh, man, uh, so happy to be here, man. Blessed to be amongst the living. And so uh, really quick, uh, let's do a, a round robin check-in, get us situated. Um, uh, Charles, we'll start with you. Uh, I, I haven't seen you in a while, sir. Oh, man, well, it's good to see you, man. I hope y'all had a good time in them, in them Philly streets, man. It looked like it was great. Uh, really bummed I couldn't be there. Uh, but, man, I like y'all had a blast. I've been good. Um, you know, things have been going really well here and just been trying to hit these goals, man. But I'm excited for today's talk. I love talking about literacy, and I think you prepared a good show. So I'm with it. Appreciate you, sir. Uh, Reef, I feel like I just saw you. I feel like your hair is still not combed, but what's up? You love my hair, don't you? I'm glad. I, I appreciate you, you know, you loving my hair. You know, that's a, you know, that's a beautiful thing. Um, yeah, I'm doing well, man. It was, it was great to see y'all. Great to, you know, connect with uh, you know, some of our community members, you know, literary society. Patreon members, Philly, you know, um, Philly folks. And, you know, and we got some history dosage in, in there, which, you know, that mean just brings me a whole lot of joy and appreciation. So great to see you. Yeah. Black literacy, man. I'm, I'm, I'm pumped to talk about it. Like that should be a part of any conversation, you know, about students and stuff. So citizen Chris. Troublemaker, resident, problem <laughs> child, sir. How are you feeling today, man? Catch us up. Uh, I'm feeling like causing problems. Uh, that's how I'm feeling. It was good to see you guys in Philadelphia. Uh, a couple of things. I've been telling the story like four times over. I told it on Twitter. I told it in our little meeting in Philadelphia. I'm going to tell it again now. So uh, while visiting Philadelphia, Sharif uh, had the city open up for us. We got to meet some cool people. We got to visit some cool things. We went to the school that Sharif used to, uh, to lead for years and years and years. And uh, that school was amazing. The children, the young people, the youth and the students that were amazing. Uh, and you come back inspired when you have those trips. I miss doing more of those type of visits and those trips. The uh, The story that I'm going to tell is short. Um, we we went to a house called the Johnson House. It's a historic site that is um, it was on the Underground Railroad and freedom seeking people used to stop at this house, which was on a farm. They'd hide out for a while on their road to freedom. And we got all the way up into the top, into the attic where there would be uh, freedom seeking people where they would hide out. And uh, it was just a trip to be in the exact same spot where somebody was uh, who was seeking their freedom years and years and years ago. And there was a window up there. I took a picture of the window. And uh, I just imagine someone else was looking out of this exact same window that, uh, that I, I'm looking out right now. And they were dreaming of their freedom. And I have mine mostly. <laughs> mine. And then we went to the school and I took a picture of the entrance of the school and the entrance of the school had Black Lives Matter above it. It was clean. It was nice. It had a table of free books in front of it. Uh, and then we went in and saw kids who were loved and nurtured and living their freedom, even though the world doesn't always treat them right. And uh, and it was a great experience to think of the juxtaposition between those two poles, the freedom seeking people years ago, looking out the window and these young people walking through these doors into a place where they can learn in peace. Uh, and it was amazing. I haven't stopped thinking about it since. I think it's, it's, it's a great deal. So Sharif, thank you. Thanks, Philly. Thank everybody for opening 
uh, opening my mind for a few days because uh, life has been crazy. So it's nice to have these reminders of of, of achievement. Go ahead, juxtapose. Mm-hmm. I see you. All right. Stop, <laughs> stop it. Stop it. $69 word, bro. <laughs> I only paid 50 for it. Go. Understood. Understood. All right. So we have a guest tonight. Uh, Dr. Mir Dottery uh, is a literacy director and content advocacy and design at NWEA where she spends her days figuring out how to get kids to be more literate and excited about reading and writing. An avid and lifelong reader herself, she routinely reads over 50 books a year on all kinds of topics, so she's dangerous at cocktail parties. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. BA, University of Michigan, master's degree, Wayne State University, doctorate in public policy and administration from Vanderbilt's Peabody. Peabody is a top five school. So I'm ready to learn and excited to learn from my Soror, single letter chapter Soror 01, Delta Sigma Theta, uh, Dr. Mia Daughtery. What's happening, babes? Were you waving to us? No, <laughs> no, no, don't do me. <laughs> we don't even know each other. Yeah. Hey, he, hey, he don't even know you. He already trying to try it. Okay, I see you coming with the heat. All right. <laughs> no, no, it's good to see you. Thank you for being here. Welcome, yeah. welcome. Thank you for having me, guys. Seriously. Every day, if you follow me on Twitter, you know, I say every day is the day to talk about literacy. So I cannot mm. think of a better way to end my weekend. So I'm my Maya Daughtery. And um, like Ray said, I'm the director of literacy for NWEA. And I spend every day trying to figure out what I can do in the seat I currently occupy to help kids be more literate. And that literally is my life's work that I wake up thinking about literacy. I go to bed thinking about literacy and what I can do, what we can do, what the community can do, what parents can do, what systems can do, what policy can do in order to improve literacy. Um, I'm black. I grew up in Detroit. So I think a lot about how to improve literacy specifically for black children, because I really believe if we lift black children, we lift everybody. So that is um, I'm very I'm very clear about that. So I'm happy to be here to talk to you guys. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Um, So we're jumping right in. Right. Um, uh, What what age should kids be ready to read by? Ready to read by? So let me tell you, I have a brand new baby niece. She is four months old. We she's ready to read. We treat her like she's ready to read. We talk to her like she's ready to read. Um, We read to her every night. Uh, She's in Detroit. I'm in D.C. She called. we, We call Auntie Maya. Auntie Maya reads bedtime stories. So. It is never too early to be ready to read. It, that's that start, the baby came home on Monday. On Tuesday, Auntie Maya had her with a book. So um, never too early. So, but if you're also asking me, um, when should st- students start reading independently? Or yeah. yeah, that's a little bit different. Okay, so when should students be ready to read independently? Um. Typically, people think about learning to read and reading to learn, Mm -hmm. right? So you hear that kind of you hear the reading conversation in elementary school framed that way a lot. I want to disrupt that because it's not quite true. When people say students are learning to read, a lot of times they're thinking really specifically about what we call um, skills that you can master pretty easily, right? So like the the let we call them 
um, constrained skills, right? So like the letters of the alphabet, the 26 letters always appear in the same order. You master the alphabet, you know it. So a constrained skill is a skill that you master, right? So you count one to 10, you, you can count one to 10, the numbers don't move around. A constrained skill is something that you learn and know. Knowing the sound that the letter A makes, right? That's a constrained skill. So a lot of times when people are talking about learning to read, they're talking about how well students hmm. master the constrained skills. Mm-hmm. That's half the story. The other half of the story is being able to make meaning from text. And that's an unconstrained skill. So an unconstrained skill is one that you literally never master. I'm well above the age of majority. I'm still learning how to read. I have, like you said in my intro, I have three degrees. I'm still practicing reading every single day. So your unconstrained skills, I encourage people to um to stop thinking about them in terms of like, this is just something you have mastered and can do. And to recognize that you're always building in your ability to read. You're always deepening your ability to read, especially as text changes and topics change and your background knowledge shifts depending on the text of the topic. What's important to know is that for students, what happens is if they don't master or are continually to work on the unconstrained skills, mm-hmm. it becomes really hard, really, really, really hard mm-hmm. to, to practice the unconstrained one. So in other words, if you don't know what sounds the letters PH make and you have mm-hmm. to constantly think about it, all of your mental energy is sucked up trying to figure out what are the letters on the page doing? So mm-hmm. that means what you can't do is figure out what do the words mean? So in the early grades, we want to focus heavily on the phonics, phonemic awareness, oral language comprehension, decoding, like what people say, learning how to read. That should be a primary focus, one that's systematic, explicit, direct, where students, we're constantly checking students' understanding. And at the same time, students have to be exposed to rich text, interesting text, complex text, text that gets them excited, text they can talk about, text that introduces them to new vocabulary. So the the that's the more complicated answer. The short answer is they're always um, practicing reading to learn. And in the early grades, we really want to emphasize learning how to read. Now, is that helpful? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I have a couple of follow ups because we're putting this highlight on you. And this is basically going to be your show with us asking you questions from <laughs> from our skill sets and our angles. Right. And so uh, so how, how so the research says that if a student is struggling to read by third grade, the rest of their educational pathway is going to be one of remediation. What advice do you have for parents of struggling readers? So sadly, I just want to say that is more true than not, right? So if students are not reading um, what the state has deemed proficiently by the end of third grade, it is an uphill struggle. It's an uphill climb for many students for the rest of their academic careers. Hmm. So that means, so that's, that's true. It does become like really hard (laughs) to do it if you miss those three years. My advice for parents, I'm going to go back. Retention is a real thing that is very, very complicated. So what I encourage parents to do is not accept retention as an absolute and not reject retention as an absolute. Mm -hmm. 
I encourage parents to ask as many questions as possible, right? So there are some benefits for some children sometimes for being retained. For other students, there are not very many benefits. Like it doesn't make sense to be retained to get the same ineffective experience you had the year before, right? So like if I were a parent of a, of a third grader who was in a state with a third grade retention law, I would ask, how would next year's experience be different from mm-hmm. this year, yep. right? Yep. And if, if you're going to get the exact same thing, that is worthy of another conversation. Mm-hmm. I would ask questions like, what social emotional supports do you provide? Because retention, kids take that seriously. Of course. Right? Like, it's not like they're, they, they don't know they've been retained and that can have real social and emotional impacts. So if I were a parent, I would ask, OK, if retention is the path we decide to go down, what social and emotional support do you have in place for students who have been retained? Yeah. So I wouldn't accept retention as an absolute. I would certainly ask a lot of questions. I would want to know about the experience because it's me and I, my little sister, she already knows I, I'm on standby. How are you teaching reading? Right. So if you are teaching some whole language, whole foolishness, then we have, I'm not going to do that. Next anyway. So, I mean, <laughs> it doesn't really matter. So I would, I would, In fact, what I do for my friends, I keep saying the consulting business I'm going to have if I ever kick it off is I consult with my friends who are parents and I help them have these conversations with school leaders and I give them the questions to ask. Right. So ask specifically, how are they teaching reading? How are they teaching phonics? So retention is a real thing. It's uh, it's complicated. It's complex. I would also ask about resourcing. So if you don't have the resources, if students can't have a different experience, if they are not going to have a reading specialist that works with them, if they're not going to have potentially some pullout time or some after school time, then why retain a student to give them the exact same thing they had last year? Of course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I I mean, so, so when you, when you talk about retention, that's a, that's a really interesting perspective because there's a lot of stigma attached with retention and special education and things of that nature in in our community. So we got to kind of step light when we talk, have those kind of conversations in in schools with, uh, with students that look like us, but I appreciate that, that, um, that advice for parents, uh, Charles bringing you in, sir. So, uh, People's Literacy Fund. You can talk a little bit about that and then segue into your question, sir. Oh, yeah. Well, one, uh, just thank you so much for being with us, uh, Dr. Mia. Uh, we hope that you feel comfortable, have a good time with us. I mean, you came in razzing, so I'm happy. I'm glad. Let's, let's just know that you ain't, you, you ain't scared to, to, to dust it up with us. Um, so I care about literacy a whole bunch. I think everybody here does. Um, and, and, you know, Ray was alluding to the People's Literacy Fund. That's a fund that I started in Oakland where we're giving funds directly to parents and community mm-hmm. uh, in India. And we got about a hundred grand there. And then Indianapolis, I think have just went over a hundred thousand dollars and we're trying to do it in a few other places. And these parents are doing amazing things with these small mini grants, like $3,000, $5,000. So my question for you is you're somebody that focuses a lot on, you talk about policy and the system and teachers or whatnot. And I think that that part is super important. Um, and I focus on that, but also focus on the agency of our people, right? Like, yeah. like these systems are not going to turn around and be great tomorrow when they've sucked for so long. And mm-hmm. we know we teach our kids to read because former enslaved people who could barely read taught other people how to read, right? At mm-hmm. the rate of death. So for my parents and the communities that I work in, Dr. Mia, 
what are some tools that they can employ at home? One that lets them know what their child's reading level is. And if there is a gap, what can they do on their own without the system uh, to bring their kid up or above speed? Okay. So I want to make sure I have both questions right. So the first one was, what can they do at home to make sure their student is progressing or reading? Well, on well the first the first one was because uh, some parents don't even know what reading level their kid is at, right? So one of my biggest things I got to teach is like, hey, your kid might have got an A or an E in English, but that don't mean that they're reading on grade level, right? Like I have okay. to help people understand that. And they're like, how can I find out what my kid's reading level is, but how can they do that on their own? Okay. That's a hard question. So <laughs> no, it really is because I, so I, first of all, I would say I would encourage parents, believe it or not, to look at their state assessment score, right? Mm-hmm. That's going to give probably the most accurate information about a student's reading capacity at a, at a holistic summative level, right? In the younger grades, I would encourage parents to ask their teachers for benchmark assessment scores. I would encourage uh, parents to ask teachers specifically for interim assessment scores. So these are reading assessments that teachers should be giving on a regular um, like cycle to see how to kind of get a gauge of a student's reading level to see how students are progressing or if they're stagnating. So a summative score, which is this big test kids take at the Mm -hmm. end of the year, that most state reports will give you some information that tells you if they are reading on, at, above, or below the expected uh, reading level for that state for that grade. Mm -hmm. If you want a more regular check-in, that I actually would not encourage parents to try to go home and give their kid an assessment and figure it out. So I do, like I said, I work for an assessment company, even though like 95% of my time is spent thinking about how um, I can help NWEA transition from a research and assessment organization to a teaching and learning research and assessment organization. Um, but we are the, you know, we, we are the, the, the brainchild behind map growth. So what I, what I can say about assessment is that it is, incredibly complex with lots of moving parts. And there are people who get paid like full-time jobs to figure out assessment. So I actually would not encourage parents to try to figure it out on their own. I would encourage them to ask questions of their schools, of their teachers that help. So can I I push just a little bit? So I started my career as a social worker and the way that I even fell in love with this is we did ask teachers, we did ask schools and they didn't have nothing for them. They didn't. They, they said they didn't know, or we're not there yet. So what, what we, what one of the things that we started to do that do help parents was just like, okay, if your kid's in the third grade, let's go get a few. Let's look at the list online and find. Okay, this is a third grade reading book. Here's a second level, second grade level, first grade level, whatever the case is. Mm-hmm. And over the course of a week or so, they would just read together and kind of piece together as much as they could. The reason why I'm asking like mm-hmm. this is because. The way that you said it is how it's supposed to go. As somebody who's worked in the district with mm-hmm. educators and with teachers, and I've seen parent after parent ask these questions and not get, that's why I ask specifically, what could they do if they're in a system that is not responsive, that's not operating well? So we do the, the book thing, and then there are some other things online, uh, and I've gone through tests with people, but I know sometimes looking at those numbers, it can be intimidating for folks. So I'm mm-hmm. trying to bring literacy mm-hmm. Literacy should be a thing that we can talk about at the ground level or yeah. talk about the science of reading with like, you know, Dr. I mean, Kareem Weaver talks about that a lot, but 
I don't want to hijack the, 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 the piece. I just wanted to, there was a reason why I was asking it in that very specific way. Oh, no, that makes sense. So with that context, then um, my answer, I will shift a little bit. So there absolutely are things that parents can do, right? So number one, I, like I said, with my little baby niece, I encourage parents, first of all, talk to your children in the language that you use for adults, right? So like even before I get to like, sitting down with a book, talk to your children a lot and expose them to really rich, really deep, really complex, not just words, but also thought patterns. And so I'll I'll kind of go back and explain that. But like your first initiation into literacy is oral. In fact, the majority of the words that you have in your lexicon did not come from reading. They came from oral interactions with other people. They came from conversation. So the first step I tell parents is starting, like I said, at birth, talk to your children a lot and talk using really complex sentences and patterns. So they don't only get the words, they get the benefit of hearing how thought is constructed, how cause and effects works, how problem and solution works, right? How to think through a problem. Beyond that, when students begin to read like more independently, you're sitting with them, you have your little one on your lap. Um, If you are trying to gauge a reading level at home, again, I still say your first, what's going to give you the most accurate information is your state summative, right? And I, I actually would still say, if you're not getting what you need from the school, then I would figure out how to ask questions to say, if you're not giving an assessment, well, how can we figure out how to get one? But if all of those things don't happen, if every other part of that system doesn't work, then figuring out what your child has an interest in, that's number one. Mm. Because you can get a third grade book, but if it's on a book the kid doesn't care about, it won't matter, okay? (laughs) So it's not (laughs) just the book. Especially for like little people. Like, have you ever tried to read somebody something that they really don't care about? You're not going to get very far. Mm -hmm. So figure out what they have an interest in. And then I will say, use your local library. Uh, So I've never been in a city where the librarians also are just, I don't know what to do, right? So I encourage the library is free. Your librarian will be well-versed in like children's literature, a diverse body of children's literature. Your librarian should be able to tell you, you know, typically children who are between age, this age and this age are reading these books and this age and this age are reading these books. So if you don't know where to go, the local library is full of resources and librarians who excel at finding books for kids. And so once you have, you know, you talk to your little one, you know what books they like, you go to your library, you get your free books, right? They're free. You bring them home. Then you can start reading to them, engaging um, a couple of things. And so depending on the age of the child, the answer might be different. So like if I'm working with a six or seven year old, I, if I, I may I may read a book that's appropriate for six, an eight or nine year old allowed a book that's about two years above grade level to expose them to the language, to expose them to the vocabulary, to expose them to the thought. Kids are short, not stupid. He may not be able to read the words, but he'll be able to understand the concepts if it's read aloud to him. So if I'm doing a read aloud, I tell parents, you actually want to pick books two or three grades above grade level so they get the benefit of the topic of the content of the language 
if I have that same second grader and we're working on independent reading, that means I'm probably focusing on, you see, second grade, probably some phonemic awareness. So we're probably playing a lot of rhyming games. We're probably playing word games. We're probably playing games that deal a lot with sound. So because students like hear letters first before they read them. Um, a little older kids, we might be working more with phonics. So letter sound correspondence, we might be practicing um, words that follow a, words that follow like, you know, words that all begin in, with the same letter or end with the same letter. Um, and all kids, like literally all kids, um, they should either be, they should be practicing fluency. All, all kids, all grades, all years, like you want to double, like double, triple down on fluency. You want your children to hear fluent reading. By that, I mean reading with the appropriate rate, with the appropriate pausing, with the appropriate um, automaticity, right? You also want them beginning around third grade to be reading aloud to you, practicing fluency. So you want to make sure that when your kid is, uh, your, your, your little one is reading out loud, that they are stopping at periods, pausing at commas, um, changing voices when characters change, um, maybe doing some tone shift when dialogue comes in. Okay, now why am I saying this, right? I'm, I'm like tripling, tripling down on fluency. Fluency is highly, 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 highly correlated with comprehension, highly. In fact, in most state standards, fluency drops off in fifth grade. I would say you should be practicing fluency through 12th grade. Hmm. And in fact, I tell high school teachers, if you're not spending any time practicing fluency, I don't know why you assume these kids can read it because you haven't taught them how to read it and you haven't like heard them read it. Right. So triple down on fluency. And the reason why is because when you are a fluent reader, that means you are reading with more automaticity, like the words just come to you. So you're. Well, automaticity, rate, and prosody, but I won't, I won't get into all that. So let's just go with automaticity. What that means is your brain is not wasting its energy trying to figure out what the word literally is, right? It's not sucking up all your energy on what is this word that frees your brain up when the words are automatic to say, what does this word mean? And that's where you want your brain to be expending its energy, not what is it, but what does it mean? So for all parents, I mean, you... If you get nothing else from this, talk to your children, <laughs> talk to them in an advanced vocabulary with complicated thought and thought patterns and triple down on fluency when you are at home. Yeah. Was that helpful? Yeah, so no more gag gag goo goo when you're talking to kids. Is that what you're telling? We can't say gag gag No, none of that. We don't want that. We reject that. <laughs> extremely, extremely helpful. So, Chris, that's that's a perfect setup for you uh, in many different ways because we were just talking about libraries. We were just talking about book deserts, which you don't think exists. Uh, and one of your sticking points in, in life is that higher ed and, and universities do not equip potential teachers with how to become reading teachers. And so you can go into your questions or, or your analysis of, on what we've learned so far. 
Well, thank you. I mean, I look at this from a lot of different perspectives, though. I mean, like the first one is where uh, Charles starts is like, what can I do at home? Right. Because Mm -hmm. we had just talked in the last couple of days. Every home is a school. Right. And every home is the first school. So so it's the first school. So what's my I don't care what level of a parent I'm at. What's my pedagogy? What's what's my mm-hmm. home's pedagogy? And it doesn't have to be all that fancy. Whatever. If I'm going to the library, you know, uh, some tips and some help on what I should be looking for and some things that I might just stick to. Maybe somebody contacts me on a pretty, pretty regular basis to alert me to some pretty fantastic books that have just come out specific to my child. I love aunties. Aunties are amazing. Right. So like we just heard in this story, like like anybody who can help, you shouldn't be on your own to do it. Right. Um, And and I will say this. I've always said that libraries to me is the one thing that my government has gotten absolutely right. Right. Free and open information to the general public. Um, I believe that public libraries are better than public schools. And I got a I think a pretty damn good education uh, um, in libraries that made up for my lousy education that I got in school in actual schools. Not everybody has that experience. I'm just putting it out there, though. That's one part of looking at it. But you do send your kids to a school every day. You are sending them into a building that is part of a 750 to $800 billion um, enterprise every year. And there's these people in those buildings that are called teachers. <laughs> and those people in those buildings called teachers come from a place called colleges and universities. And in those places called college and universities, there's these other people called professors who have these big things called theories and, and ways of seeing the world. And they're the ones who instill those theories into the people called teachers who go back into schools with practices. I've, I've just illustrated something that's supposed to work now. My kid is supposed to come here now and they're supposed to be reading. We're not supposed to be even having this conversation. So so help me out, Doc. Like what, what has fallen apart that we have a 750 to $800 billion system of people and theories and logic and I still can't just send my kid to school every day and expect they're gonna come home proficient in reading. You trying to get me in trouble with hiring? No, no. I am trying to get you in trouble. Okay, I, I, see, I see what this is. Okay. <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm setting you up to be in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so I will start with your your last point, right? That higher ed is a massive complex that has a lot of diversity built in it, right? So, one of the things that we just know is that theory is theory. Research is research. They all have limitations. And when you try to operationalize, you have to operationalize the research and the theory in the classroom. You're not in um, the perfect conditions, or you're not in the same conditions that the research was conducted in. Right. So, you know, you actually have a kid who's having a meltdown. So the research doesn't talk about what happens when the kid has a meltdown in the middle of the room. Okay, so you know, that real life, real life does come into play. Higher ed is largely, I would say, now I'm not a higher ed professor. Let me make that very clear. I'm not a higher ed professor. These are really just my thoughts, and they are. I reserve the right to change them, gentlemen. You're not gonna hold me to these thoughts, even like ten minutes from now. But I will say this much right though. Now, but you did go to a, a world famous 
I did. University. I did. Super well, super world famous. I know some people out that same place and they're all, all of the ones I know from that one are brilliant. So you you probably have a lot to tell us. Well, the number one (laughs) thing you learn is when you get new information, you change course. So I'm just saying I reserve the right to change course. But higher ed, um, I would, this is just my observation, is largely stable in a lot of ways, right? So we literally have over a century's worth of research on vocabulary and comprehension, like more than a century. And if you're, when you're conducting research, you want to make sure your research is valid and reliable, which means if you repeat it over and over again, you're going to get um, a similar or the same result under the same conditions. So because of that, I would say a lot of higher ed um, is is more stable than it is, you know, in 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 it, than it is like transitory or or in constant flux, which in some ways is a good thing, right? You do want some stability in your system, but when you come to school, you know, students. I won't say students are different. I would say our context, our society is different. So like a hundred years ago, people didn't even have the internet. A hundred years ago, you couldn't like log on and talk to literally anybody across the world. A hundred years ago, there was way less access to text and authors who are black, Latino, Latinx, international, Asian, right? So like our societal context has changed a lot and all of those changes cumulatively um, add up to, I would say, just a, a different experience in students, you know, generation by generation, maybe even year to year. So I'm going to pause for a minute because I want to make sure I actually understand your question. Will you please repeat like what your your core question is? I don't know where the breakdowns are in mm-hmm. being able to, for a parent or a taxpayer who sends their kid to school every day, just expecting that the thing works. It seems like kind of late in life. It's 2022. Okay. It seems kind of late in the sophistication of this thing we call a school system and all of the money and resources that it has and all the years and years and years of knowledge and learning to still be talking about whether or not phonics is good. Or got not. it. OK, now I got you. Yeah. OK, so, yeah. so I was so the other thing I would say is that the idea of works is not an I everyone doesn't define work in the same way. So let me just start there. Mm-hmm. So how mm-hmm. I define works could be really, really different than from how you define works. So mm-hmm. I define it as kids can read. I'm talking like in the higher ed system, right? So there okay. are lots of researchers and programs which will say balanced literacy whole language works like there are whole bodies of study that are crafted around um, theory and research that substantiates that view. That is not the view that I hold. But there are people who say this is the research I've done. We have research that says this works like Fountas and Pinnell. Like they say this works is built on research. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if we're if we're not. <laughs> And I don't mean you and me. I think you and me are on the same page. But if we're not defining works in the same way, then we're we're going to have different outcomes. Now, the same people who are saying balanced literacy is effective, whole language is effective. If you just give kids enough books, they'll fall in love with reading and they can just kind of like by osmosis figure it out. If you have teachers who go to programs which are built under these ideas, then you are going to have a workforce that believe that really, I mean, deeply, deeply, deeply believes that this works. And I will say this. Before you go to a program, 
they don't tell you what the philosophy is. And I've been to three. And so as a, and my master's degree is in reading. And my, and at the time I would say my master's degree came from a program which definitely had more of a whole language slant. I mean, like, so that's how I was trained. It took me years to unlearn that learning. But before I went to my program, I didn't, I didn't, they didn't put it on the website. Like we believe in whole language. It just said, you're going to get a master's degree in reading education. So if you don't know um, how complex reading is before you start, all degrees can sound the same. So there are lots of people that say, what I would call very ineffective practices are very effective. So that's part of it. Then you layer on top of that, um, teachers get into classrooms and I've, I've worked with amazing teachers all over the country and they, um, you, they may not be in a system that is continuing to provide in-service learning on phonemic awareness, on phonics, on fluency, right? Lots of systems are not offering ongoing PL to teachers. Lots of teachers, especially like in our rural communities, are working in isolation. You might be the only third grade teacher in the city, I mean, in, in your, you know, in your city or your town. So it's, it's hard to say this is why this fails. I like to think about what are all of the entry points and where do where is it likely that breakdowns are going to exist right so there are people in higher ed that say this way works it's not a way i agree with and just as fervently on the side where i sit there are folks saying no really we need to teach phonics explicitly and directly and you leave there and then people oftentimes go back to the neighborhoods where they grew up to teach and are teaching how they think they were taught. So that layers on another complexity. And then another complexity on top of that is, does your school leadership understand how reading happens? A lot of administrators, not for lack of trying, aren't reading specialists. So they're depending on their teachers to tell them what works. But if your teachers are, are using ineffective practices, do your admin know when to step in? Do your admin know how to observe, you know, oral language comprehension or phonics or phonemic awareness? So I don't think your question, I think your question has multiple layers, multiple entry points, and there really is no one, one answer, except I would say there is certainly a lot that we can do, right? So as a parent, and this is how I coach my friends, you need to ask, how, what's your philosophy on teaching reading? If you hear balanced literacy, if it were if it were a child that I cared about, we would be going to a different school. Now, that's just me. If it's my little baby niece, we not stand here. I would be listening for words like um, explicit phonics, phonics, science. Right. So I coach my friends. Here are some things you want to listen for and ask about. And if the school doesn't have it, you can either stay there and take a chance, which, you know, everybody makes choices or you can put your child elsewhere, or you can, if you really are invested in your, in your school, work with your teachers to say, you know, I've heard about this. Would you be willing to like try this? So, you know, you know what sounds so crazy about this and, 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 you know, I'll kick it back to Ray and Sharif and others, you know, but what sounds so crazy about this to me is the fact that we're coaching parents to ask these questions, to understand the philosophy of reading or the, the progress and all the stuff within the school. Um, in a way in which teachers always say, you're not treating us like the professionals that we are. You would never treat doctors like this, but I would never coach my cousins to question the doctors on 
you know, the medications that they offer and the surgeries you, that you they wouldn't? I do. I, I, I do. I, I do. start, fam. Well, listen, I wouldn't coach. Listen, you get the point he's trying to make. I, I, I know everybody. This is this is a point. Your point, Chris. No, this is my main point. Educated people love to get lost in their shit when stuff should be simple. We do not sit around and think we're good. Like the people who say that they have done their own research on the vaccine drive me crazy. Right. You have not done your own research on the vaccine. Right. You have not. Because let me un- introduce you to what research actually is. And if you have done that level of research, you probably wouldn't be showing up to school board screaming all the wrong stuff, being loud and wrong all the time. Right. I'm not saying you don't get second opinions in medicine. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that you don't shop around on things like, you know, does this does this hospital have a, a uh, track record of over prescribing or overdoing the wrong things? I'm just saying there's a certain level of professionalism that you expect them to have after many years uh, being doctors and medical school and residency mm-hmm. and and practice. And there's some stuff that they won't do to kill people anymore. Right. <laughs> to, to the level to the level of which we are killing black minds in schools every day and, and at such a rate where like listen uh someone just told us yesterday or two days ago about a four or five percent proficiency rate in a school can you imagine like a 97 percent failure rate in hospitals no i can't i can't someone told me hey yeah we've taken you to the hospital right now you got a 97 percent chance that you ain't coming home huh let me just stay home if that. Yeah, okay. yeah that's going to be a problem for me at, at that point. Like, you know, hey, you're getting on a plane. The pilot has a 97 percent uh, chance of crashing this puppy. Right. What? 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 All right. I'm taking I mean, I'm, I'm taking back the wheels. Go ahead. You know, <laughs> you know, you know. Hey, so I'm throwing it to the CEO of the center. We're talking about professional development. So this is I know this is this falls in his will well for him to lean in. So Reef, uh first give us your thoughts on what you've heard so far. And then secondly, set us up with your question for uh Dr. Daughter. Yeah. Look, I, I mean I, I agree and I, I'm appreciative of you know uh just how she's described things and you know the expertise that she's bringing you know as, as a former principal we used a map um you know testing uh to to see about you know uh progress and how things were going um we even tried to use it uh during freedom schools but our the window was too short um so you know but we were engaging with you know the uh the organization to find out okay is this the right assessment for a six week program or no and they said no this is you know more of a long term and things like that but uh, we've been working with, you know, Dr. Nell Duke and her team out of the okay. University of Michigan. Yeah. World renowned expert, early literacy and like just early on training our teacher apprentices, high school and college students. We were still like, you're in 10th grade. What could you do to support mm-hmm. a first grader in literacy? And that's the kind of like framing that we started with. But I, I just think, you know, overall, um, you know, one appreciative that that you're on. And I, I think one of the, the challenges is how many teachers who aren't specifically, as you said, like reading specialists for first grade, you know, they're in 10th grade or they're teaching seniors or they're teaching even fifth and sixth grade. And they're like, I'm not a reading teacher. I heard that far more than I expected to coming into the profession. Cause I'm like, literacy is everything. Everybody's a reading teacher. And they, you know, I, I encountered some folks um, who were adamant I'm not a reading teacher. And I'm just like, then how are you a teacher? You know what I mean? Like how, and so I, I think that's, you know, uh, you know, a big part of the challenge. I love that you talked about librarians, you know, my, uh, our 
neighborhood librarian uh, was invited to my sister's wedding and she came. And it was just on the strength of how often my sister was in that library, you know, um, and the relationship that she had with her as a, as a child and, and young person where she's like, oh, she was so instrumental that I want her at my at my wedding. You know, like that was like the relationship. So, you know, anytime Chris talks about libraries, I'm like, yeah, like that's such a, you know, powerful, important um, matter of fact, that's daddy's daughter date this, you know, next week is to the to the library, you know, because we didn't get to, uh, you know, they haven't been to like our main city um, join. But um, yeah, I, I, I think my question is particularly around like how does background knowledge come to come to this? Uh, we had Dr. Al Tatum on Freedom <laughs> Friday one day. Um, he was really pushing and challenging uh, uh, us and an audience to ensure that there's a, a variety of books, yeah. you know, um, particularly around the science and, and just other things. And he, he's like, usually black kids or black school, they're like, oh, yeah, I want to teach it. And they give them basically biographies and autobiographies and civil rights, and which is fantastic. But he said, like, what about all the other things that students might be interested in, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so I would love just to, you know, hear your, your thoughts about um, that as well. Okay. Um, particularly with balancing like a kid doesn't like that. What's the how how can families balance like the exposure is like, you know, newborn, you know, like when kids start eating, you're trying this, you're giving them this, you're exposing like how how can a parent, you know, um, do And I'll just add one other context. Like I, I was in a, a bookstore once and it was a, fa- a brother I knew. And he was like, yeah, my kid's struggling reading. And so he was just grabbing books. You gonna read this. You gonna read this. You know, so I pulled him to the side. I'm like, hey, that's not quite the, you know. Not quite the way to do it, um, but you know, a lot of families. That's like, all right, you haven't struggled reading. Teacher said you're struggling. Here, read. You know, read this. And he was just pulling anything and everything off the, uh, you know, off the counter. So, how do we balance that? You know, background knowledge, exposure, but also student interest, student choice, and voice. We used to say um, at Shoemaker and other places. So I'm gonna, <clears throat> I'm gonna just say I agree with uh, Dr. Tatum, background knowledge is uh, is critical, right? So a lot of reading, let me go back. When you read, you're doing more than just calling words from the page. When, when you're reading, what you're doing is in your mind, you're inferencing, you're analyzing, you're making connections. The way you understand something new is by connecting it to something that already exists in your head, right? So if you have something you can compare a new experience to, it it's more likely to make sense, right? So when I'm talking about background knowledge, I'm talking about the trove of information you have in your head that you may not even be aware of that you can pull from so that new information makes sense. Um, I have a, a little cousin. Uh, I won't I won't call his names. He did not give me permission to talk about him, but he's seven, <laughs> right? He's what seven? He's seven. Okay. He's seven, and he's he's precocious and he's he's very bright and he loves to read. A little black boy loves to read, and he also loves to draw. When I was home, maybe for Christmas or Thanksgiving, you know, my aunt called me and she says, you know, Maya, we're gonna go. I'm I'm taking little cousin to uh, the Van Gogh immersive experience, and I was like, oh my god, I've been wanting to go to that, right? But it's always sold out in DC. So I said, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna crash your party. And at first, I was like. This is an interesting field trip for a seven-year-old, but okay, <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm I'm here for it, right? So we get to Echo. I said, well, Aunt Wanda, why are we why are we taking him to this? And she goes, oh, he is so into 
art right now. He loves to draw. Actually, for Christmas, he he drew me my own original snowman and signed it and had it framed. Right. So it's a young man who's really into art. And she goes, and because he's my aunt's a retired teacher. She goes, because he's so into art, I want to, you know, just kind of build on that on that interest. Little black boy. So we go to the Van Gogh immersive experience. I don't know if you have ever been, but the one that we went to had three rooms. So the first room, there actually is very little Van Gogh art. It is very tech heavy. There are massive signs um, that walk you through Van Gogh's life. And the text is not written for a seven-year-old. The text is written for adults. So the language is hard. It's, it's complex, right? So even me as a as a reader, I had to stop for a couple minutes and read each of the marquees and you know, so I can learn about Van Gogh. What I noticed was my little cousin when he first got in and the room is dark and he's seven. So, you know, you're, you're working on borrowed time. He goes up to the first sign and he says, he starts to read it, or at least he starts to word call. And some of the words he did not know, but a lot of them he did. And so my aunt and I went and stood next to him. And so some words that we knew he could sound out, we kind of just probed and pressed. Other words, you know, we helped him read. And then every couple of, of the signs, we would stop and ask, um, comprehension check questions, right? So what was Van Gogh's relationship like with his brother? Why do you think that he, Van Gogh did this? Oh, wow. Do you see what he did to his ear? Why do you think he would do that? Right? So the first, I would say half an hour is we're in a, we're in the exhibit, which is very text heavy. And we are engaging with him on the text in the, there's an anteroom where the immersion begins. And there is a lot of light. Um, there are these Van Gogh images that kind of like, are they're on the wall and they fade onto the floor. So there is a lot of movement. There's a lot of music and it's just, it's visually more exciting, right? So when we get there, you know, he's, he's watching and looking at all the, all of the art and actually dancing around because there's music. And so we just kind of enjoyed that. Then we got to the main room, which is where the full immersive experience begins. And it's 35 minutes long and all the faint paintings fade into each other. There's a ton of movement. There's a ton of music. And so we're looking at the paintings and we're sitting down. I'm like, you know, what does this painting make you think about? Or what does this painting make you feel like? And why do you, why do you think he uses this color blue? So we're just, you know, enjoying it and talking. And near the end of it, he turned and said, um, Maya, what's the genre of these paintings? You could have not, you could have kicked me over with a feather. I said, what? He said, what's the genre of these paintings? And so I didn't want to make it, I didn't want my excitement to come across. I said, oh, I said, you know, you know, these are called, um, I said, well, Van Gogh was an impressionist. Uh, so these would, I think this would be called like impressionism, impressionism, or that's the style of the paintings. And then he looked at me and said, Maya, I want to add that to my word of the day list. Great. So my aunt maintains on her on her um, iPhone, on her notes, his words of the day. So we stopped and she added the word. And then he we talked about what does uh, impre what impressionism means. And I give him like, you know, a seven year old example. And then I look at my aunt and I say, well, what other words are on this list? Because now I'm curious. Right. And so she reads some of the words. And here here are some of the ones I remember. Hallelujah. Nuclear. Mm -hmm. Uh, raptors, diabolical, mm -hmm. cauldron, aqua, backslash teal, humanity. And so when he's out in the world and he is 
observing language or reading language, he makes a note. I want to remember this word. He'll often ask one of us, what does this mean? So during the exhibit, you know, we were looking at the I'm asking him like what the pictures make him um, feel or think about and taking what I would call a very effective approach. So engaging like the emotional space to the art. Right. And so at the end of it, um, what I what I realized is he's seven. Like I said before, kids are short. They're not stupid. Engaging (laughs) in high quality analysis. Now, what's going to happen next? He's going to go back to school. And when he gets to art again, the teacher is going to show some pictures of some flowers or some pictures of, you know, a starry night. He's going to say he's going to somewhere in his mind that experience is going to be triggered. And he's going to say something about impressionism. She's going to be blown away because we all were. And he's going to say, well, the genre of these paintings, the only way he could know to ask me what's the genre of these paintings is because at some point prior to that, someone mentioned the word genre to him and explained that. So he was able to make sense out of that Van Gogh experience by pulling from his understanding of genre. Like he's seven. He's not, he's not 15 year old. He's seven doing um, art analysis that I guarantee will segue into literary analysis the next time he sees art, reads about art, is in an art class. So you, you can't um, overestimate the importance of background knowledge. What's really hard right now is figuring out the depth of the impact. So right now we all know there is an impact. It is real, it is strong, and it is positively correlated to comprehension. We just don't know how real, how strong, if that makes sense. So like how much background knowledge do you need? Nobody really knows yet, but we all seem to agree you do need it and you have to consistently be building it by exposure, not just to text, but to art, to music, to um, museums, to like any any space where where children can learn more about the world they are in all of those experiences layer on top of each other and stitch together to help them make sense out of new experiences and new text. You know, um, just quickly, that jumps out at me about that example that it's a weird thing for me to key in on, but genre as a word makes no sense. No, it doesn't. <laughs> so if you look at it just in reading and you have never heard it, uh, outside of the spelling of it, and you just read it on paper, you would say genier or something mm-hmm. else. You would not say genre. So that he so that he said that to you mm-hmm. tells me he's got multiple sources of a context going on mm-hmm. in his life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just reading the the text, but he has multiple sources of of context. Yeah, he uh, knows French. You know, we, he knows we, French genre. Because genre don't make no sense as a word. Go look that up. Tell me that word makes any sense. When you All right, it's French. French. Making sure we're on track. All right. Um, track, <laughs> so, so I guess I, this comes to my question, right? So, as a systems leader, I got a lot of things that keep me up late at night. Um, one of which is uh, student reading levels and just write books, right? And so, if we're, if we're given uh, three to five recommendations for parents to ensure that their kids are lovers of reading, what would you? What, what would they be and why? 
So for a parent, yeah, I would say stop giving kids reading leveled reading and just write books. That'd be number one. Okay. Um, why? Because we don't want to lock kids into a reading level, right? And I happen to believe your reading level shifts depending on your interest and your background knowledge. Hmm. Let me give an example. I, uh, I, I, like I said, I read all the time. I read every day. You, if you give me a book by like, um, um, mm, who's my, Toni Morrison or Zora Neale Hurston. There's maybe not Toni Morrison, but definitely like Zora Neale Hurston or James Baldwin, like a, a, a fictional book by a black author situated in a black community. I will be able to read that book with relative ease, right? It's not going to be typically a hard book for me to get through. If you give me a book by Voltaire <laughs> or philosophy or a text on physics, I'm going to slow down. <laughs> it's going to be it's going to be much harder because conceptually, I won't have the same depth of understanding. Um, I certainly don't have the background knowledge of physics for me to make a lot of sense out of a physics textbook. So mm-hmm. even though like I'm a good reader, depending on what you give me and how motivated I am to read it, I might not be a really good reader on that text. I might not make very much, if any, meaning from it c- compared to um a text that's on a topic that's familiar or a topic I have a lot of interest in learning about. Students like children are the same way, right? So a student who may read at a lower level, but has an interest on a topic, number one is going to be um, more motivated to figure out a harder text on that topic because they want to know more about that topic. If they, um, if they are building background knowledge on a topic that's new or or just kind of moderately familiar, they're going, you're going to want to expose them consistently to slightly harder books or, or information on that topic from different spaces like podcasts or music or art or other, other entry points, right. To help build background knowledge. And as students build more background knowledge, they're also building the vocabulary associated with the topic. They're also building like how logic and thinking happens in that topic. So it's not just the content they're building a lot of other contextualized skills. And as they learn like more vocabulary about the topic and more about how the topic even functions, they will be able to read harder books on that topic. But if we only give them books at their reading level, then they're never going to increase their reading level. So again, this is at home. So I really view home reading to be mainly for pleasure, mainly for fun, reinforcing exposure to new topics, new topics and concepts you may not get in school. So for parents, I say, if they have an interest in it, let them get the book they want to get. If they want to, um, if they have the motivation to struggle through it, let them struggle through it. Ask lots of questions, reread it, practice reading it aloud. If they lose the motivation to struggle through it, that's okay. I mean, I have a graveyard of books I have started and never finished. Like the world won't come to a crashing end because you decide partway through, this is not the book that's for me at this time. Find another topic or find a book that's slightly easier for your child to to make sense of and want to be motivated to read. So if I were the parent, I would say start with interest first, 
and increase and, and slowly increase the complexity of the book. As long as they have the interest, keep giving them harder books. The other thing I would say for parents in terms of um, reading at home, practice a lot of reading with them. So you read aloud, do shared reading, paired readings, do oral readings, going back to the fluency and back to oral language. Again, I can't like triple down on that enough. So at home, I actually would encourage parents um, not to not to focus a lot on level reading and the same goes in the other direction. Right. So like if a student or if, a, if your child wants to read a book that's at a level lower than what they normally do, that's that's OK. It's not, that's OK. I mean, I have a doctorate. You think everything I read is a doctorate level? I, I mean, no. I mean, like it's OK to sometimes read a book that is interesting and engaging, even if it's not as cognitive challenging as how you can read right now. So over the, in your home library, you want to have a range of books of a range of complexity that first and foremost for kids are exciting and motivating for them to, to get through. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for coming on and being amazing. Like uh, this has been uh, 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 about six months in the making, you know, with your busy schedule. But I'm glad we were able to pull it through on Black History in Black History Month. Uh, so thank you for that. So we're going to go into closing thoughts. And so I'm going to start with uh, I'm going to start with Sharif uh, in closing thoughts. So Sharif closes out. Uh, Dr. Maya, we'll finish with you. And then we'll we'll take us out. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I love that. You know, I, I think it's so important to have like this type of expertise, um, you know, and exposing, you know, uh, folks with it. It was just, a, you know, um, you know, it was it was great. I would I would add, you know, something that you made me think of uh, There's some families, you know, they may have a kid who wants to read the same book multiple times and sometimes mm -hmm. the parent may get frustrated and you know really encourage families like no if your kid likes that book come up with different questions as you're reading but keep read you know let them keep reading if it's a comic book you know sometimes you hear parents like no you can't read this you can't read that or a comic book or this or that um and so i really love that you said like you know um it's not always on their level like it's not always instructional um you know, it can still do just uh, great work. Look, I want to get in touch with you. We're uh, planning to start Freedom School Literacy Academy in Detroit uh, with these high school and college students teaching first, second and third graders. Read up, phonics instructions and stuff. So um, phonics, positive racial identity, um, all that kind of stuff as they learn some of the you know art and science of, of teaching and the mindset, skill and will. Um, and I would also just let folks know we put... Uh, Thanks, uh, Ray. Showed me how to uh, jump into Patreon. So I uploaded a, a really short clip about the elementary school. I'm always, you know, raving about. Um, they talk about literacy a little bit in this uh, short documentary. Um, one of my teachers um, speaks about this. And just shout out to all these, you know, just educators who look at literacy as a human right issue and seek the development necessary to carry the weight of something that's a human right issue. So, and thanks again for, you know, for being on. Really, really appreciate you. Yeah. All right, we'll jump to Cole. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you, Dr. Meyer, so much for being here. Took a lot of notes. Uh, that's usually, <laughs> I take notes every session that we have, but, um, you know, today was one of those heady days where you should take notes. Uh, parents, um, I would say this, if you haven't been taking notes, grab a pen. Uh, first off, I think literacy and freedom have a strong, bold line directly connected to each other. It's so important that if an enslaved person tried to read, they got 
an appendage cut off, right? And the person mm-hmm. teaching got punished. So like, it's really, really important. But I really want to make sure you're empowered because, you know, I love these schools where they teach their own point with literacy and all that stuff. But unfortunately, that wasn't my experience as a student, wasn't my experience as a social worker, wasn't my experience uh, on my road to get my doctorate in education, wasn't my experience working in districts, right? So you got to, but I'm, I got you though. Oh, just think of and, awareness, navigation, and duty. So first, check with your teacher. And if they don't have an answer for you, you need to go straight to the office, straight to the principal, right? And if they ain't got an answer for you, you should just keep going because there is a modicum of, of quality that you deserve. It might not change overnight, but you know, you deserve that too. Mm-hmm. Do not conflate uh, grades with proficiency. Like just, I know it's counterintuitive and it shouldn't be that dumb, but it is, right? Like just cause your kid got an A in that thing does not mean they can do it well, which is very sad and hard to explain to parents and it's, it's disappointing. Um, but when we talk about awareness, parents, you gotta be aware of where your kid is. Can your kid read or not? Is your kid behind or not? Like you have to be aware because once you're aware, now you can navigate. And navigation means, are we going to the library? Am I asking for extra packets of work? Am I, when are we reading together? What are we doing? Am I putting them in a reading group or whatever the case is? But once you have that awareness and navigation, now you got a duty. You have a duty to make sure that your kid can read, man. And reading ain't just understanding words on a paper. It's being able to use them. So when you're talking to a young person, teach them skills. What I say in my book club, make the text talk to each other. Hey, we read this thing last week and we read this thing this week. Where do those things connect? What is something referenced from that last piece that we see in right now? And I understand what the good doctor was talking about around getting them things to read that they're familiar with. And I think you should, but I also think you should expose them to a bunch of things that they've never been exposed to. Um, I think that that we should struggle with text. I think that like that part of being a sleuth and the detective when you're reading and having to write down words uh, to get the definition of them later, I actually think that that does expose you to a lot. Um, one of my favorite stories ain't got nothing to do with my life or growing up or whatever, but you know, those old fables like really spoke to me. So uh, I really appreciate you being here. If y'all have questions from today, because there was a lot of stuff in there, I would say write those questions down and we can try to get those to Dr. Maya uh, to get those things uh, answered for you. Yeah, that's dope, man. Thanks for that. Um, and uh, Citizen Chris. Uh, well, thank you, Dr. Maya. I appreciate you being on tonight, sharing your expertise. Uh, expertise is important uh, in these situations. Uh, we are in trouble, I think, with reading. Uh, boys specifically, uh, are not uh, big fans all the time of reading and are not necessarily voracious readers. As a parent myself, multiple times over, I think we get a lot of advice. I think most of the advice is crap, just to be very honest with you. The struggle is real. The get your children reading at home. Uh, I've watched things change over a couple of generations of kids uh, to the point where my oldest, who is you know uh, watching his show tonight, read these really thick Harry Potter books that we still have here in the basement. And we have every one of them in the basement here and they're big. My youngest kids now won't even consider like looking at those and getting through one or two pages of them is really, really, really tough for them. Like just even the thought of trying to do it is boring as hell. So I actually, as an adult, thought I was gonna go jump in, read the books and maybe figure out a way to engage them and then I almost fell asleep. Books are boring as hell. Uh, um, and even to me, they are. Um, so, you know, so we have a struggle. You know, my daughter loves to read. She goes and grabs books out of the library and comes home. She finds exactly the ones that that appeal to her and that she 
likes. Uh, we have been through several iterations of trying to find ones for the boys that resonate, but every now and then something will. And then, you know, we, we, uh, we lock on to something. They're not getting as much of a love of it as she is uh, because she's more practiced now, even though she's the youngest of the bunch and the struggle's real. So I love the, the idea about strengthening up what schools can do in terms of good instruction, understanding the science of reading, understanding what they need to do at school to help uh, help young people unlock the skills within themselves that they need to read. And at home, I'm trying to do my own thing. I see someone put in the in the uh, comments here, graphic novels. We've done graphic novels. We're trying it. You know, we got different co things going on. But I don't want it to ever sound easy to parents because a lot of times we give parents advice and they're already down the chute, you know, a couple of uh, a couple of steps ahead of us when we don't even know that they really are. And they're trying different things. We are trying things. We go to the library, go to the bookstores uh, every Christmas and birthday or whatnot. We're buying different books and we're trying different things. Um, and um, I think we just got to keep working at it. We need expert, experts like you who give us some advice for at home. We definitely need schools to do their job. We need higher ed to really kick in and start making sure that we get more teachers to the classroom that understand the science of reading and, um, and, and just pray for us because the struggle is real. Boys aren't finding, uh, I think in a lot of cases, just my own experiences, boys aren't finding the thing that they love in reading as much as, as, mm -hmm. uh, as maybe previous generations did. Yeah. So that's dope, man. Thanks for sharing. So, Dr. Me, a couple of things I want you to address on your in your closing thoughts. One, uh, do, did you feel safe on our podcast? Did you feel held? Did you feel, <laughs> did you feel, did you feel trusted? Validated. These are all things that I got to ask, man, because, you know, people be coming and saying some weird stuff. So mm -hmm. did you feel safe? Did we did you feel protected by the brothers? Um. I, I did feel safe. I felt challenged, but that's a good thing. That's not a negative, but I'm from the D. So we, let's go. I mean, like this, this, <laughs> this is my life of work. I've never, I have a back of steel, so I'm not afraid. I'll try away from a challenge. Yeah. Um, so I'm actually, I'm very glad that I came on with you guys and I yeah. saved the snow day, but yeah. that's a conversation for a different, a different. Yeah. I ain't hearing that. All right. So, <laughs> so I guess this, the second part of my, my question for you to close out is, um, can you uh, provide some support to parents who may struggle uh, with literacy themselves? So like, how can we, mm. uh, how can we help those parents that are struggling with, with, with literacy themselves help their kids? Um, I will, I will address that. But part of my closing thoughts, I actually wanted to respond to a little bit of what Chris said and a little bit of what Charles said. So I'll start with Chris. Um, my sister and I grew up in the same house, same parents, same mother who's a reading teacher, same dad who took us to the library. My sister was not here for the books. Okay, <laughs> she wasn't. Megan was not here. For the books, she wasn't here for the reading. I was the nerd sister who was like under the covers at night with a book, right? Megan was like, keep these books. I have other things <laughs> I want. My sister is a pediatric dentist, okay? Mm -hmm. And she, so I tell people, it's not how the story starts, it's how the story ends. So even though, like, I'm sure like you do, um, my mom recognized we were just very different children. And so like what worked with me in terms of my reading journey didn't work with Megan. And she just had a it was a different journey with a child four years younger who was who did not as easily or naturally just gravitate to wanting to read. So I don't know if this is helpful or not, but 
much like you're saying you're doing. That's what my mom did with my sister. She just kept working at it, trying new things, exposing her to new topics, you know, making sure we were all consistently, both of us consistently exposed outside of the household, searching for new books, understanding, you know, sometimes my sister is, she, uh, she also, she also has a a back of steel. So she, she also did not go gently into the night. Um, So hopefully um, that is at least a little bit encouraging that, it, 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 I do recognize that it can be really hard and kids, even in the same household, will not may not have the same journey. To Charles, I want to say thank you for uh, checking me. I don't mean that in a negative way. Oh, oh well, <laughs> I was like, I didn't do that. <laughs> No, 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 not in a negative way, but I didn't realize I was coming off as saying only read things you're interested in. So I want to make that really, really clear. You should be exposed to, so I'm agreeing with you as a diverse body of content and information possible. So absolutely, you should find text and topics that engage you that you want to read about. You should also consistently as a parent, as a student, be exposed to books and texts that are about people, places and times completely different from you, about topics you know little to nothing about. So um, thank you because I didn't realize how that sounded. So I'm glad for your closing comment because I want to clarify my mind to say that volume of reading is not only on things you have an interest in, absolutely must include things you know little to nothing about. So thank you for that. And then um, uh, Ray, to your question about parents who they themselves may not, uh, may still be on their literacy journey. I would say um, first and foremost, um, there is no shame in being who you are, where you are. So if you are a parent who is still learning how to read is, is on a literacy journey, I encourage you to reach out to other parents in your network, in your schools, work with your teachers, work with your teachers or other parents that you know to, to um, get strategies that you can practice at home with your students and any adult who is themselves still like on their literacy journey, I strongly advocate for um, seeking systems, support programs to help you become a stronger reader so you can be a stronger advocate for and a stronger presence for your for your child. So this is a if this is something you don't know how to do or don't do as well as you want to do, uh, I really encourage you to um, seek out local resources that can help you. So like in Detroit, the Skillman Foundation does just an excellent job working with um, adult adult readers, right? So seek out your local resources and get help. And I think that is opposed to me giving a blank this, find the people in your neighborhoods and your communities that specialize in adult literacy and ask them, how, what can I do? And what can I do for my kid? If this is, if this is my truth right now. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. This has been an amazing show. Uh, I guess my closing thought is your kids should be reading fluently by the end of kindergarten. You guys have been listening to another episode of the Eight Black Hands podcast. We'll see you guys next week. Peace and love. You have been listening to the Eight Black Hands podcast with Ankrum, Cole, El Mecki, and Stewart. If you like what you heard, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at 8BlackHands1. Thank you for listening.